Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Hopes and Dreams. I am Jonah Batumzi, Blendian Project founder. Hopes and Dreams is a conversational series with dreamers, innovators, entrepreneurs, and everyday people of the global majority to showcase, strengthen, and liberate. I'm really excited about today's show and our guest, who is Dr. Evelyn Mensa. We will get to her soon, but I want you to find out about all of the excellent work that she's been doing in the National Health Service or the NHS in England. And let's bring on Evie. Hi, Jonah, how are you? Hello, Evelyn, how are you today? I'm really good. I'm really excited to have this conversation. Yes, thank you for thank you for joining us. Uh, obviously, we've known each other for a little while now, half a year to about a year. I've really been wanting to have this conversation and have you on the show. So it's all perfect timing. Seems like the stars have aligned. You're making moves. Things are changing. And um, thank you for to to speak with us. Thank you so much. And we're aligned with our outfits, the color of our outfits, and we've not actually planned it, have we? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And for everybody watching, we have not planned to be. Oh, Evie, um, tell us a bit about yourself. So um, your Twitter handle says that you're a, a Ghanaian Geordie for people um, who aren't familiar with the UK. A Geordie is a person from the Northeast, Newcastle, yes. is that correct? Actually, being a Geordie means that you're from Newcastle upon Tyne, um, which is where I, I'm born. My parents um, came over from Ghana, which is one of the countries in West Africa. Um, they're from Kumasi, a place in Ghana, and they came over to the northeast of England, Newcastle upon Tyne, in the 60s. And that's where um, I was born. Um, I'm the middle child of three sisters, all right? Um, but actually, I thought I was the eldest um, for a very long time, not knowing that I had an elder sister who had been born in Ghana, and she came and joined us later. Um, but yeah, born in Newcastle, cool. hence I'm a Geordie. <laughs> cool. And what, and what brought your parents over originally? So my parents are from Ghana, so I call myself a Ghanaian Geordie. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. I, I want to recognize that I'm like, even though I wasn't born in Ghana, I was brought up by Ghanaian parents with Ghanaian values, eating Ghanaian food, listening to my parents speak tree every day. So that's why I call myself a Ghanaian Geordie. Gotcha. And um, so what was that like then growing up, uh, growing up in the in the Northeast? Um, and how how has that kind of uh, impacted and influenced your, your work today? You know, I can talk about this with a two sort of like a two-pronged approach, Jonah. And I will I'll I will start with the happy stuff first, and that's my family. I mean, my family is the center of my universe, my parents, my sisters. And um and I can talk about the um the wider Ghanaian community who were my parents' friends, who we would call our uncles and our aunts, even if they weren't blood relations. And the reason I will talk about that, and I'm smiling about it as I'm thinking about it, because every Saturday night in our house was a party night. Mm. It was, it was, it was, you know, it was the time where my my mum, I think my parents are real good at um, entertaining people, 
Um, so what they would do is that my mom, she would make our traditional food, which is fufu and soup. My dad loves to entertain. He he had the biggest drinks cabinet, I thought, you know, and, you know, you cannot come into our house without having a drink. And what would happen is that every Saturday, my parents would have their friends round and they'd be eating Ghanaian food. They would be speaking um, Ghanaian language and they would be playing music, high life music. We had a so-called uncle, um, that he wasn't really a blood uncle, but he's my uncle Tony, and um, and his brothers were in the band called Asibisa. So, you know, we'd be listening to Asibisa music, we'd be listening to High Life, everybody would be dancing, everybody would be happy. And then and then there's the other aspect of, of being brought up in a um, part of the country um, where... I experienced a lot of racism, direct racism, and I'll just say that from the start. Um, I went to nursery in Jesmond, where I had a thriving childhood. And as soon as we moved to a place called Killingworth, everything changed. Hmm. And that's when I experienced daily. And in fact, I was discussing this actually with um, Prof Chigamundo, and I was telling him that, you know, every day I went to school, I'd have racial slurs directed at me. I'd have it from strangers on the way to school at the bus stop. I used to hate walking past the bus stop. I think my aim to get to school was to get to the bus, get to school without having stones thrown at me. It was horrific. And I would say that, you know, that, that was my experience of living in the northeast of England was every day was racial slurs, the N word, the W word. Oh, my gosh. Roots came out. What a nightmare. You know, people even managed to make the word Kunta Kinti and Kizzy sound like a racial slur. I mean, it was just ridiculous. And I think that what I did, and 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 I think my, my mom used to say to me, she used to say, look, Evelyn, you cannot come home from school crying every day. Because every day I'd come back from school and I would be crying. And I think that was like a light bulb moment for me. And I thought, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. And I think I used education to resist racism. It sounds ridiculous, but I just mm. put my head down. I wanted to get out of Newcastle. For whatever reason, I was made head girl of a virtually all white school. It was like myself and my younger sister, Fiona. We were the only black kids in our school. And I don't even know whether I was actually voted for by my peers or whether it was my teachers. I don't know, maybe because mm. I was that's what I had no clue. And I wanted to do medicine mm. and I used it as a route to get out of Newcastle. And Newcastle has got a fantastic university, but I did not want to go and do medicine at Newcastle upon Tyne University. And I actually distinctly remember the day I went for my interview for medicine, and nobody does this. I actually went into the for my interview and I said to them, Oh, well, I don't really want to come here. I'm gonna mm. go to London. And needless to say, they did not offer me a place at Newcastle. And anyway, happily, I got into uh, St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, which was in London, which is where mm. I wanted to be, because I could see people that looked like me there. I wasn't sure that looked like me in Newcastle. Sure. That's and what and, and what was it about medicine that um that um that attracted you, or why 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 medicine? Was there any particular reason? When I was five years old, I had my tonsils out at um, Newcastle General Hospital. And I absolutely loved being in hospital. I think I was the only child that actually cried when they had to go home. Hmm. Um, my When I came out, I said to my, I think my dad had got me a doll, which was a nurse's doll. And I said to my dad, I want to be a nurse. And my dad said, no, Evelyn, 
you shouldn't be a nurse. He said that you should be a doctor. So I have to thank my dad, actually. It's my dad who suggested that I should be, I should mm. be a doctor. And, mm. um, and so when I was at school and um, we were getting to sixth form and we were deciding what we were going to do, we were doing like careers day. I remember going to the careers fair and saying to a doctor, he was a guy, he had a mustache, he had a three-piece suit on. And I said to him, I want to do medicine. I want to do a doctor. I want to be a doctor. And um, and he said, and he looked at me and he said, well, um, you've got to just pass your exams, you know, not really any tangible advice I would yeah. say about, yeah. you know, pass your exams, fine. Um, and then I went away and then I noticed that there was another boy in my year who actually lived opposite from we did um, in Killingworth. And he went to the same doctor on the career advice table and um, but for him he took out some pamphlets and he and leaflets and he gave it to him mm. so needless to say I don't think I really got very good career advice about wanting to do medicine so I did my own research and I have this trait that when I think that someone thinks I can't do something I will go out of my power to do that thing it's almost like don't say no to me, because if you say no to me, I'm going to do it anyway. You're going to want to do it 10 times more, 10 times more. Yeah. So you um, ended up going down to London and then uh, obviously decided that you wanted to be uh, an ophthalmologist. Um, and oh, for anybody yeah. who may not know what an ophthalmologist is, could you just say or tell us what your um, what what that what that means and, and what you do? So ophthalmologist spelled O-P-H-T-H. <laughs> because everybody spells it wrong, is, I do not, too. is not the same as an optician, all right? And sometimes when I say, sometimes I don't even tell anybody that I am an ophthalmologist, because when they look at me, I'm a black woman. And if they look at me and they're like, think, what's an ophthalmologist? Um, some people will think it's an optician. There's nothing wrong with being an optician, but I'm not. <laughs> mm. I went to medical school. So basically what it is, it's like an ophthalmic surgeon. So it's an eye surgeon. That's what being an ophthalmologist is. But as small as the eye is, it's a huge speciality. And we all subspecialize in one particular part of the eye. It's a tiny, tiny organ, but it's a massive speciality. It's a speciality which is the busiest in the National Health Service. We see more patients than any other surgical speciality or outpatient speciality and that's a good thing about ophthalmology it's a combination of outpatients the clinics procedures mm. and surgery um mm. yeah so that's what ophthalmology is and um just for everybody I'll, I'll let you know the way that i know that we know each other is that um my wife's Veta is also a, an ophthalmologist as well too so that's how we you know fortunately um connected but what i found out from you know, speaking to various different people who are in all different um, kind of uh, professions within the NHS or within medicine, is that it's quite a it's quite a niche um, speciality, um, and, and it's quite competitive to actually yeah. um, get into that speciality yes. as well too. So, yes. I guess why is that, and what does that mean in terms of diversity of people who are actually ophthalmologists? I think that I. I can tell you from my experience because when I be, when I qualified from from medical school, 
um, my first job, my first job, which is called House Jobs, was was, was working for a breast surgeon called Margaret Gilchick at a hospital called St. Charles's Hospital in Labrick Grove. I loved, I loved that hospital. I really, really did. And I loved, I loved working for um, Mrs. Gilchick. And by the way, um, we're having this conversation as well, weren't we, Jonah, that in the UK, surgeons are Mr., Miss, and Ms. Yeah. So, um, so when she was a breast surgeon, and whenever, and she, she dealt a lot with um, people who were suffering with breast cancer. Um, and when she used to remove breast lumps, what she would do is that she would ask me to stitch up the skin, suture mm. up the skin. Um, and one day she said to me, she said, oh, Evelyn, you know, you've got beautiful surgeon's hand, she said. And she said, you should be a surgeon. And I looked at her and I was like, I don't think so, because the surgeons were up all night, you know, dealing mm. with acute abdomens. You know, they never got any sleep. And I thought, uh -uh, I want to get married. I want to have four kids. I'm not going to be a general surgeon. Mm. And she then said, well, what about eye surgery? So she was the one that suggested eye surgery. And that was another light bulb moment. Um, so I went and had a look at a to speak to some people um in an eye hospital i'm not going to say which one it is everybody will know which one i think it is i don't think i was really encouraged mm. and again, it was that other situation of oh you don't think i can do this i'm going to do it um and really i think as well i have to say that the initial reason to do it was because of lifestyle yeah I, you know i just thought you know there aren't that many ophthalmic emergencies that have you operating through the night they really aren't. Um, but at the same time, it is a very, if you think about it, we are operating in a small space, three millimeters. You have to have a degree of ambidexterity to be able to do ophthalmic surgery because we're using both eyes, we're using both hands, and we're using both feet. You know, hmm. it's it's a really, it's a technically, um, I would say, difficult thing to do but extremely pleasing i hmm. love it i really actually do love it i love i love the surgery i love talking with my patients i love i love our uh, registrars you know the doctors that are training to become consultants and i just i do actually really love my i really do actually love my job um, no i can so, tell you yeah. do um it, it's the same for my same for my wife as well, too. Um, one thing I just want to pick up on that I, I'm kind of frustrated and, and upset about is, you know, you talking about the lack of encouragement that you received. And I think this is repeat, this kind of repeats itself over and over from so many different people that I speak to, whether it's um, younger kids or um, people my age or people older is, um, you know, we have these dreams and, and passions and things that we want to do, but oftentimes it's the people in um, positions of power or, you know, people who are teachers or mentors or people that we look up to that are oftentimes telling us that we can't achieve these things. So I just want to call that out um, and let people know if you are in that situation where you have people who look up to you and, you know, they, they want to go for something, um, don't be the person who who feels that you need to damper their dreams and, and tell them that they can't achieve something. Absolutely. You cannot, you can't be what you can't see. 
All Correct. right. I mean, there are not that many in, in the UK. If you look at the um, ethnic mix of surgeons um, and for particular specialities, and, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't aggregate myself too much. All right. Um, I disaggregate myself. I don't put myself into that acronymed group of black, Asian, minority, ethnic, or, you know, BAME or BME or whatever. Um, I put my, I say my, I'm, I say I'm black. Um, if I want to be disaggregated further, I'm of Ghanaian heritage, born in the UK, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, my experience of uh, navigating the educational system, navigating uh, medical education, and actually navigating my way to be um, a consultant ophthalmologist, which in the UK, in the USA, is known as an attending, is very different. People that look like me, you know, the darker you, the dark, the, the the more melanin there is in your skin, I would say the more the system is against you at every single stage, right from school all the way through. Mm. So, and, um, and what is that? So what is that like? Uh, what does that equate to in terms of diversity for ophthalmologists? Um, uh, I mean, are you one of the only um, uh, women, black women in there? Or do you know anything around that? I've, I've counted them. I, I created it. I think I've got the list. And I do believe and somebody will probably correct me later, that out of the almost 2,000 um, consultant ophthalmic surgeons, ophthalmologists in the UK, uh, 27 of them are black. Mm. So there are about 20 who are women, like me, and about seven or so that are men. There are not that many. So I think mm. out of all the surgical, I don't think we're the worst in terms of surgical specialities, I think maybe possibly it's um, orthopedics or maybe neurosurgery. I saw one, maybe it's neurosurgery. I was at a melanin medics event um, a couple of Saturdays ago mm -hmm. and I met a black neurosurgeon. I'm sure he said that he was the only one. I think that's mm -hmm. astonishing, isn't it? Don't you think? It is. It is. It is. And so, yeah, back to the point that you made earlier, right? So how many other people wanted to actually be neurosurgeons, but were told there's no way that you'll actually ever be that. And they have just decided that, you know what, they're not going to try for it. But um, so that kind of brings us to kind of speaking about the NHS in general. Um, as I was saying earlier, I think I read a post on, on LinkedIn and a woman was speaking about um, this as a lot of people, if you don't know, this is the 75th um, anniversary um, yeah. since Windrush, which is um, when people um, from the Caribbean um, were called over um, to the UK to help um, work in a variety of different um, organizations and institutions, one of them being the NHS um, and also the transport service as well too. And I, I get this feeling that because the NHS is one of these institutions um, of, of, the, of the UK or uh, of England, that a lot of people seem to have this um, uh, idea that there's no way that racism can exist in in this structure. Um, what are your What are your thoughts, or what do you? Yeah, what are your thoughts about that? Well, first of all, the first thing that I'm going to say is that the NHS is a microcosm of society. All right, and um, and I talk about systemic racism, and systemic racism exists in the NHS, and it's evidence with the multiple reports that we have. So the workforce 
population of the NHS is 1.3 million people. And year in, year out, uh, we are asked to complete an NHS staff survey. Now, the staff survey is completed by about just less than 50%, about 600,000 people. And every year that this, that this staff survey is completed, um, NHS staff are asked, on what basis of your protected characteristic do you feel that you're discriminated? And the commonest reason, and it's been going in an upward trajectory um, since they've been re recording it you know, properly with all nine protected characteristics, is race by almost 50%. It's going in an upward trajectory from about where it was 40% to almost 50%. The other protected characteristics that they look at um, in terms of discrimination are about 20%, you know, for gender, 10% for disability. But this is the commonest reason. And if you look at the NHS workforce, people who they identify as black minority ethnic Sorry. Only, only represents 24%. All right, so 24% of the NHS workforce is black minority ethnic, and yet the commonest reason that NHS staff feel that they're discriminated against is on the basis of their race. So that is systemic racism. And then if you drill it down even further, looking at something called the Workforce Race Equality Standard, and these are all reports that have been um, created, they've been commissioned by NHS England. So the evidence is out there, you can just Google it. Um, and they look at the um, something called the RES indicators of which there are nine. And there's been the recent one called the Medical Workforce Race Equality Standard. And again, it looks at what the makeup is in terms of the executive, you know, the people who, people who are in the senior leadership. Good morning, everyone. Mm. Yeah. This Sorry, sorry, go on. I don't want to cut you off, go ahead. That's okay. So basically what I'm just saying is that there is systemic racism within the NHS as evidenced by the multiple reports. And I think that what we need to get away from is being shocked by the findings and um, for there to be action, def definitive action um, to address the disparity that exists that is based on the amount of melanin that there is in your skin because that's what it is at the end of the day yeah yeah one thing so i i really started um thinking about this uh during covid um time um 2020 um everyone was kind of glued to their tvs and, and obviously because i'm from the the states and that was one of the epicenters where um things were really skyrocketing yeah. you know i find myself watching these um uh, these, these Donald Trump briefings where he'd be, where they'd be talking about COVID and the numbers and everything like that. Yeah, and a couple, couple months into it, um, I remember, I think it was the Surgeon General or somebody um, then brought out a report where they're saying that, you know, black and brown or, you know, black and South Asian communities were um, disproportionately affected by like three or four times um, other people. Um, and I was like, Damn, I didn't know that. That's pretty. That's pretty shocking. That's like one of these um, police brutality um, type stats that you see when you just sit there and you think, "Damn." And then I was waiting to see, well, what the what what's the follow-on report going to say? What what approach? What actions are we going to take to to fight against this? Shortly thereafter, a similar report came out in the UK where they said, you know, Bangladeshi 
um, Caribbean people, Caribbean people, Afro Caribbeans, etc., um, were being disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, but there was never a response or inaction to what they were going to do. Um, and I'm sure that you, you've seen this as well too. Recently, in the BBC, they'll release reports that say, um, you know, there's shortages of blood and, and organ donors and um, you know, prostate cancer and things like this. But there's never uh, a solution or it feels like a concerted approach to actually try and fix these things. And it feels like that's very much how racism is looked at as well, too. I think what happened during COVID, and we've got to remember that at the same time that COVID was happening, um, George Floyd was being murdered. And, mm. um, and I think that that was the straw that broke the donkey's back for a lot of people. Um, and I think what COVID and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter brought to light were the disparities that existed pre-COVID. It then brought it into the light and nobody, nobody could, you, you couldn't, you couldn't put it away again. You know, it was out, it was out in the open. And the reason why, and I mean, there's the COVID inquiry that's taking place at the moment where they're looking at, um, you know, what actually happened within the NHS in terms of, um, you know, availability of PPE, um, personal protective equipment, and, you know, and the reason why there was the disparity with, unfortunately, um, our colleagues in the NHS um, who passed away, and it, it, it impacted our patients too, is because of the roles that the so-called, what they describe as black minority ethnic people were doing within the NHS. So if you look at the NHS, at the higher management level, the very senior management level, at the clinical director level, at the chief operating level, at the chief nursing level, you know, chief finance officer, every single mm. executive level, all right, um, in the NHS. I mean, the best way I'd describe it is it looks like a pint of Guinness, all right? So you've got mm. all the black brown people, minority ethnic people, global majority people at the bottom, on the ground, doing all the portering jobs, doing the cleaning jobs, you know, dealing with the patients on the ward, et cetera, et cetera. But at that real senior level, whether it's part of the medical workforce or non-medical nursing, admin, you know, all the other roles, management levels, there's that big disparity. And that's why there was the disparity with the deaths. Gotcha. So I want to pull up a, a video here um, shortly. Um, this is one of the, the reasons that I really found myself inspired by some of the work that that you were doing. Um, and we'll talk about this case with um, Dr. Odoye. Um, but I want to take a look at this, this video for a little while here. If we could just um, do that. Okay. Of, of Today is Saturday, colleagues. the 25th of February. We're standing outside the General Medical Council for the 19th Saturday in a row in solidarity with Dr. Valentine Udoye. Dr. Valentine Udoye is a Nigerian international medical graduate who wanted to practice as a GP in the UK. He sought advice from three people, the GP National Recruitment Office, Health Education England and NHS England. They advised him to apply for the induction and refresher scheme for GPs. This was incorrect advice. Dr. Udoye. 
So I watched you. So you were posting these updates on on Twitter, um, and I watched you stand outside the um, the BMA. Um, no, no, we weren't no? outside the BMA. No? no, we were outside our regu our regulatory body for doctors in the UK is known as the General Medical Council, the GMC. Uh, which we acronym the GMC, which we acronym as GMC. So we were standing outside the GMC on a Saturday. The GMC is not open on a Saturday, right? Um, mm. But that was and you'll you'll see that to the right of me, um, I was standing outside with another doctor called uh, Mrs. Samantha Gordon. And um, she's she happens to be a consultant ophthalmologist too, um, mm. and we were also standing next to um, Auntie Acria Rug, and I would say, I mean, she'll tell me off for saying this. I describe her as anti-racism activism royalty because she mm. really is. Um, but basically, we were we were doing something called a silent vigil, um, in solidarity with Dr. Valentine Udoye who we felt was being systemically discriminated against by the system, the mm. NHS and the GMC. And um, and we just felt that it was really outrageous that he'd been fighting this case for five years. And, for and you didn't even know him. You didn't even, you didn't even know him. him. Never met um, him. If I remember correctly, you found out about this case and felt so I don't know what what, what did it but you it, something it, it lit a fire in you and I watched you for 19 how many ever Saturdays going there and having this silent vigil and I just watched this from start to end and I was just so inspired by it because I feel oftentimes you know people think about what they can do what can we do to change things oh I can't do anything I'm not going to do anything um, but I wish this would change and nothing changes if you don't do anything. But I, I watched you do that, and I just want to say thank you for doing that. Um, I learned a lot from seeing you do that um, from the start to the very end, um, and it was powerful. And it wasn't so just you. me, Jonah, it wasn't just me. It was Sam, Samantha Gordon, Auntie Acria, and Sam stood out there for, for, for 20, it ended up, the. We met Dr. Doye on the 20th Saturday because that was after he got the result, which where the Medical Practitioner Tribunal Service, um, they found in his favor, which they'd done before. It was the GMC who had appealed the case and that's why it dragged on for five years. We just thought it was absolutely outrageous. But but I think what that, what that demonstrated to me was the power of collective action. People underestimate the power of, you know, people, you know, in simple terms as, people power, all right? Mm. And there's a fantastic professor called Professor Kamara Jones who talks about collective action. And she says, collective action does four things. Collective action is powerful. It protects, it inspires, it informs. And I saw all four of those components when we were doing this collective action. And I think the reels, I did the reels because I think it was my, it sounds really weird, but like my artistic release of the situation because it can be traumatizing, you know, and triggering dealing with these cases of, of blatant injustice. I mean, this poor man, lovely, lovely man, all he wanted to do was work as a GP in the UK. He had an international medical graduate qualification for a GP, and all he wanted to do was contribute to the NHS as a GP. He sought advice 
from the bodies who should know better. And you told you saw them who I talked about there and they gave him the wrong advice. So he filled the wrong form and he ticked the wrong box and he was deemed to be dishonest. I mean, seriously. Mm. And you've mm. ruined this man's life. You know, I mean, it's, it's the, I can't tell you how traumatizing from and how damaging from a physical, from a physical and psychological, you know, point of view, being a survivor of systemic racism is, it is horrific, absolutely horrific. And it needs to stop. It really does. It's just too much. We're done. <laughs> mm. What about, is there anything else that you learned from that, um, from that moment? Yeah, I learned, I'll tell you what else I learned, how scared people are. Not everybody believes in the power of collective action. Not everybody will put their neck above the parapet. I mean, I used to pose those, I, I mean, you know what? Let me go to that bit in a minute. Let me talk about the power of social media. As mm. much as like a toxic cesspit Twitter feels like at times, and it really does. <laughs> Let me tell you something, right? <laughs> it really is like a toxic cesspit of horrificness, all right? Um, I think that we use social media to our advantage. We use all the social media platforms. There, you know, and even if, and you know what's really interesting, Jonah, even when you think that nobody, you feel like, you know, you might be in an echo chamber, you know, who you're talking to, you're talking to yourself, maybe, yeah. you know what I mean? Nobody seems to like your posts. People are seeing them. We know that people saw those posts. They may not have felt safe or comfortable liking them, but they saw them. And we know, and, we, and, I, and I know that. So I think it was the power of social media and also how black people do not necessarily do collective action well. And I think you need to understand the history of colonialism, of slavery, to understand the reasons why black people don't do collective action. Because in a, in a network of where there are 300 black surgeons, one of them came on one of the silent vigils, one, mm. all right? And they were on maternity leave. Mm. Mm. That says a lot. Um, it's, it's, wondering... I can understand people being scared, though, Jonah. I can understand people being scared. And I'll tell you why people are scared. People are scared to call out systemic racism, all right? They're scared because they're worried that they will be targeted. They will be deemed to be a troublemaker. Do you understand? I agree. I agree. I agree. And you so therefore, to, I'm going to yeah, keep my head down and I'm not no, going to rock the no, boat. No, but, but but they don't understand the power of collective action. You know, look at look at Chris Smalls, the Amazon union labor guy. Mm. I mean, he's gone off. He's 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 gone head to head with the wealthiest person like on the planet. Jeff mm. And he's done that with people, power and collective action. Hmm. You know, so I think that people have to not be complacent and accept the status quo. So I talk about, you know, like you were going to do the title as fight against racism. I don't talk about fighting against systemic racism. I talk about resisting. We're resisting. All right. And by resisting, what you're doing is you're calling out. You're saying enough is enough. 
You're making people accountable. I think accountable is being accountable is so underestimated, Jonah. Mm. You know, there is no, there is no, there is no redress for the perpetrators of or the institutions, the institutions, the systems that facilitate systemic racism. I strongly believe that there should be redress in the form of an apology to the individual. I don't think Dr. Doye ever got an apology. Mm. And whilst everybody knows about the 26,000 pound bill that the GMC landed on his lap for the pleasure of being, you know, I feel victimized, targeted unfairly for five years for something that he didn't, you know, I mean, dishonest, I mean, seriously. <laughs> when they had by when someone underneath them had advised him, yeah. You know what I mean? You went to advice from three, you know, bodies. And then the other thing is that what people don't know is it costs 200,000 pounds for him to do that, to fight that case. That was raised by his community. He has a community of people that love him, that supported him and helped him. But you know what? He, I mean, I, I'm just wishing him well. I just wish him all the best. I really, really do. Because it is just not easy. Because we do know that, um, unfortunately for some people who, who face, you know, referrals to the regulators, it can have a really, it's it's just so damaging. So what his, what his tagline was, which I think everybody should be aware of, is resolve, not refer. So when mm. there are any situations, you resolve them. Jonah, it's like what I call paracetamol gate. I mean, we've just mm. heard about that poor Algerian doctor who was referred to the GMC because of paracetamol. Are you kidding me? Mm. Mm. <laughs> So, um, right, so right, so so out of the back, off the back of that, um, he was found um, not guilty. Like you said, I don't think he got an apology. Um, nope. But then shortly thereafter, um, you were named uh, the chair, um, the EDI chair for the <laughs> Royal College the, of Ophthalmologists. Royal College, the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. I mean, the thing is, is that I've been working. I mean, when George when George Floyd was murdered. And with Black Lives Matter and with the COVID deaths, I reached out, but particularly it was with George Floyd's murder, I reached out to our president at the time, who was Bernie Chang. And I looked on, I looked at our college website and I was like, hang on a minute. Are we not going to be saying anything about what's happening in the world? The world is like, you know, on fire. Yeah. You know, the Royal College of Ophthalmologists, are we going to, are we going to have a statement? Are we going to do anything? What's going on? And he... I actually really have to thank Bernie for this because he allowed me to run a webinar because remember it's 2020, we're in mm. lockdown. Yep. So we did a webinar, we did a webinar um, and I invited various speakers to come and speak. I invited Tim Lane from the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, I invited so many different people, Yvonne Cockhill. I invited, um, you know, lots of different people to come and speak and we did um, a survey um, and interestingly, after that, we then, Bernie said to me that he wanted me to run the EDI. Um, Sorry, what was the survey? What was the survey? What was the survey asking people? Do you experience survey, racism? Yeah, they were asking people whether they had the tools and the knowledge 
-hmm. and um, to be able to um, dismantle systemic racism. And lots of people, did they, we asked questions like, do you think that systemic racism exists? You know, mm -hmm. is it a thing? You know, what is your experience? A lot of people will say like, no, 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 no. And then after this, after the webinar, we then asked them, what did they know a little bit more? They did say, I mean, it was a positive thing. It went in a positive direction. But obviously one webinar is not enough because being anti-racist, um, you know, which is, you know, trying to dismantle systemic racism, it's a continuous process, isn't it? It's a continuous process of educating, learning, reading. I'm constantly, I've got books, I'm, I, like going to workshops yeah 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 yep. well, you're, you're educating yourself constantly aren't you but i think that you know what the difference is jonah i think that people find it very uncomfortable saying the word racism systemic racism just even saying that word i'm not saying you're a racist i'm saying that we are living in a structure and a society where the system unfortunately is rigged against people of color, evidenced by so many reports. And anybody who says things like, oh, I don't see color. Oh, we're all the, I'm sorry, <laughs> red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is a red flag. It exists. Yeah. You cannot solve a problem unless you say it. All right? Mm -hmm. you, can, you cannot solve a problem unless you, unless you say it. And you got to look for it. You got to see how it's, how it's, manifesting and you have to and you have to hold people accountable like what you're going to do i didn't solve the problem i didn't create systemic racism it's not me that's done it do you understand mm. people of color did not create it so what are you going to do about it mm. Mm. no very true very true so we're getting we're getting to the end here. Just have a few more points that I would like to ask you about. Is um so in your title as well too, you have um uh, res expert, um, yeah. and I know that you have attended, um you attended a, a res workshop, I believe. Um, no, and... not a workshop, not a workshop. No. So Jonah, no? I was no, no. So what being a res expert, workforce race equality standard expert. So when we look at the res indicators for all the NHS organisations in England, because the res the res reports are created from England, London, London, which has the most diverse workforce, mm -hmm. has the worst res indicators. So there was okay. a strategy from um, NHS London to create res experts in in every single NHS organisation in the London um, trusts and CCB, no ICBs, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm 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 a res expert for my organization london northwest university healthcare trust but every single um nhs organization in london should have a res expert and basically what they are an expert in is race and the workforce they know about the indicators they can hold their organizations to account um, they work with the organizations to develop action plans to try and redress the balance the disparity that exists um, so that course was a one-year course. It was supposed to be residential face-to-face -face over a one-year period, eight, 17 days over a one year. It was supposed to be over six months. But because of COVID, a lot of it had to be done online, all right? Mm. Um, so the, the, last, the penultimate and last day were face-to-face. -face. Um, and I will say that I, I qualified as a doctor in 1991. And I will say that that, because I've, I've been working in the NHS for 32 years, and I will say that that is the best course I have ever been on 
in my entire life. It changed my life. I remember you saying that as well too. Can you tell us briefly what what was it about that that um, what was so profound about it? First of all, you've got the facilitators and the organizers. It's run by a com- by a company called in- Inspiring Hope. So you've got Jacinth Ivy, who's the lead. You have Murmiri um, and you have um, Abdul, who are facilitators on the course. And what they did is they they delivered that course with a lot of compassion an understanding. I've never been on a course before where at the start of the course they're playing mindful music and we're meditating. Mm. Because mm. go, you know, because when you're talking about systemic racism, it can actually be quite triggering for a lot of the people. But not only that, they gave us the language and the tools to understand exactly how systemic racism manifests within the NHS. It gave us the tools to dismantle it. It gave, they gave us the language to be actually to name to name things. Like you know, there was one word. I mean, it sounds like a silly word, but like what about tree? Because you know, hmm. when everybody talks about racism, people then say, "Oh, well, what about what yeah. about gender? What about dis- yeah. we're not saying that these protected th- characteristics are not important, but the one that's imploding, the one where the house is on fire constantly. You know, I talk about protected characteristic street." You know, the one, you know, from Louis Horn's um, words that we've created an infographic on, the one, the house that is like raising to the ground <laughs> on mm. fire, like the burning thread through the NHS is the matter of systemic racism. And there's evidence to suggest that if you address systemic racism, then all the other protected characteristics come into place. Mm. Which, I, which I wholeheartedly believe, believe in as well, too. Right, we're we're at the end here, but one thing I like to do, um, as in the the title of the show as well, too, is um, ask you what are your what are your hopes and dreams um, for the future. Obviously, you you, you have this new role um, as the chair, the first chair um, of the um, Royal College of Ophthalmologists. What are your what are your hopes and dreams to um, what are your hopes and dreams? Yes, what are they? Yeah, so I'm the chair for, for EDI, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging. All right, that's what we talk about. But it's not just, you know, with the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. I would say throughout the NHS, I think that the hopes and dreams that I have for the NHS is for us to have an organisation where literally it does not matter what colour your skin is. It doesn't matter what accent you have. It doesn't matter how you look, you will be treated with the same respect, irrespective of what your background is or anything. That's, I mean, what I'm talking about is I want to get to a situation where we've got parity within the NHS, where there is no difference between my experience or anybody else's experience or anyone else who looks like me or anyone else of color within the NHS. And I want that not just for the workforce, I want it for our patients. All right. I want I want I want to work in an organization where we look after our patients in an equitable fashion and there is no difference in the outcomes in terms of health. That's what I want. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. And as you said that um, and I looked at the screen because I'm looking at you, um, I felt that um, and I hope that we can create a a world like that for you know not just the patients but the people who work there as well too 
So yeah. not just in the NHS, but 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 everywhere. Well, oh yeah, absolutely. I'm going to do my my bit in the NHS, being an NHS worker. But gosh, yeah, of course we want it for the world. But is it going to happen in our lifetime, Jonah? We just have well, to just let's see. I'm, I'm I'm sure going to I'm sure going to it might not, but I'm sure going to try. So um, here we go, um, Evelyn. Thank you so much for um, joining us on the show today, um, taking time out on the Friday um, before the weekend. Um, thank you for sharing your story and your truth and, and your journey. And we wish you nothing but the best for the future. Thank you so much. And thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation, Jenna. Thank you for, for I mean, I'm like, like, who am I? Nobody. But thank you for, um, no. for, for this interview. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We will see you again. Um, make sure to um, watch this back, share it with your friends, share it with people who need to see this. Um, we will be back with uh, with another exciting show soon. Thank you.